Kate and her sister, Margaret, is Joy. And, and the way they represent this is sort of through the show, you see that Margaret has just loved being the center of attention. She loves being in the spotlight, whereas Elizabeth would rather stay hidden in the background. And as you can imagine, this creates a bit of tension in their relationship because Margaret is basically constantly jealous that she's not the queen and, and the queen is constantly frustrated that Margaret thinks that's such a great thing. So when the queen goes away on a royal tour, Margaret is sort of more than excited to be filling in for her sister. However, the queen's a little bit more unsure, but with some sort of like, like strong words, she gives Margaret very strict instructions and she, and she goes off and leaves Margaret. And then you get this snippet of what life might have been like if Margaret was the queen. She seems to like revel in the role at first. She seems to love it. She loves being the center of attention at every party. And she loves being the talking point of all the newspapers. But you start to see quite a different approach to the role. We've seen Elizabeth sort of work hard at being um, unbiased and, and reliable. Yet Margaret's approach is, is more carefree. She, she gets drunk at parties and she changes her speeches and, and she, she says things that she's not meant to. And the overall sort of feeling from the, the palace is that she's been reckless and irresponsible. And after an important speech is changed, she's told she has to step back from the Queen's duties. And the episode is really interesting because it's asking the question, what sort of Queen do you want? Do you want the straight-laced pride of Elizabeth? Or do you want the unpredictable joy of Margaret? And although all Margaret might seem more fun, she, she creates instability and chaos, whereas Elizabeth is steady and reliable. The question, is asking, the question it's asking is, is, what sort of person do you want to rule over you? What sort, of, what sort of country do you want to live in? What sort of ruler do you want? And today, as we go to Exodus, the passage we're looking at is asking the same sort of question. In this passage, we see two kings. We see, we see God and we see Pharaoh. And today's passage, you can ask the question, what sort of king do I want to rule over me? So as we look at this passage together, let's ask the question, what sort of king is God? And what sort of king is Pharaoh? Um, let's start by reading Exodus um, together. It's on page 63 on the Bible on the table. Um, we're going to be in and out of this a bit, so it'd be great if you could have it open and you could read along with me. Um, brilliant. So I'm going to start um, with Exodus 7, verse 6. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was eight years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. This is our first glimpse of these two different keys, kings. It's their first sort of face-to-face -face encounter of this section. As God sends Moses and Aaron to, to meet Pharaoh we get to see a bit of what Pharaoh is like and a bit of what God is like. So what sort of king is God? He is strong. When he sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and they throw down the staff and the staff becomes a snake, which snake wins? God's does. Right from the off, from this tiny snippet, we see that God is stronger and more powerful than Pharaoh. God is strong. 
his snake will swallow up Pharaoh's. That's our first sort of glimpse of the sort of king God is. He is strong. But what sort of king is Pharaoh? Well, let's be honest. Pharaoh is also strong. He is also powerful. He summons his magicians and he gets them to do the same thing. They throw down their staffs, they turn to snakes. Pharaoh is the sort of king who rises to the occasion when he's threatened. And in this moment of power play, Pharaoh tries to, to match God. He gets his magicians to do the same thing. Now, it's probably worth noting that in Egypt, um, pharaohs were basically gods to the Egyptians. Pharaoh was the most powerful man. Pharaoh has real power. The Egyptians literally would treat their pharaohs like gods. There was nothing Pharaoh be seen as not being able to do. I don't know if you've ever um, heard of or studied Tutankhamun. He's one of Egypt's most famous pharaohs. And his name literally translates as living image of the god Amun. Pharaohs were gods in Egypt. They were the living images. They were the representations of gods. So here, we see one god go up against another. We see two kings in a power play. And there's a clear winner. God's snake swallows up Pharaohs. Pharaoh is strong, but he's not as strong as God. He can get his people to turn their snakes to staffs to snakes. But at the end of the day, God's snake swallows up Pharaohs easily. And as we think about what sort of king do we want, why does this matter? Why does it matter that God is stronger than Pharaoh? It matters because God is stronger than the powers we feel oppressed by. We will all, at times, just feel ground down by powers that oppress us that feel bigger than us. And it's often sin. Sin and death often can just feel like they are bigger than us, they are stronger than us, and we can battle with them and feel like we're losing. Sin's power can sometimes just feel too strong. I'm sure we'll all have sins in our lives that we know we just fight with again and again and again and again. And sometimes they can just feel too strong. But for me, one of the big ones is fear of man. Like, I so often come away from a conversation thinking, oh, I wish I'd spoken the truth. I wish I'd said what I thought rather than just saying what they wanted to hear. Or, or I come away from some gossip when, I, when I've been with some people and I thought, I didn't say anything, but I also didn't say what I should have said. I didn't say the right thing. I come away and I feel like, oh, I gave in again. I caved again to fear of man. But it, but it might not be that for you. It might be something totally different. Maybe it's anger. Maybe you wake up in the morning and you think, right, today I'm going to be really calm. Today I'm going to be really patient. And then, and then before you know it, you're, you're shouting again. Or, or, or maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's that long evening in where you say, do you know what, I'm not going to go near the laptop. But as the evening goes on, it's just too tempting. Or maybe it's the glass of wine you know you shouldn't have. But nothing else seems to bring relaxation in the same way. So you pop open the bottle. It might not be that any of those, it might be something totally different. But we all have areas in our lives where we will feel tempted to feel like the sin we struggle with is too strong. It's bigger than us and it's more powerful than us. Or its power just feels stronger than us. And in those moments, a king who is more powerful than the powers that oppress us brings good news especially if he's the one who's willing to fight the battle for us. Paul describes this battle like this in Romans. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
when we're faced with oppressive power of sin, when we're faced with feeling like we're losing, we can say we're more than conquerors through Jesus. Because his power is bigger than the powers that oppresses us. God is more powerful than the sin in our lives. His snake swallows up Pharaoh's. God has shown himself to be the more powerful king, even more powerful than Pharaoh, the most powerful man. And this is just at the beginning of our story. So so let's keep going. Let's see what happens in the story. Read with me. I'm going to read from verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed to a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With this staff in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed to blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and the water was changed to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went back into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water, because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed and the Lord struck, since the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs and they will come up into your palace and your bedroom, onto your beds and into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and your kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with the staff over the streams of the canals and the ponds and make frogs come up onto the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses and your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs that he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards and in the fields. They were piled into heaps and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. 
They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand, the staff and the staff struck the dust of the ground, the gnats came on the people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce the gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on the people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Suddenly, the stakes get a bit higher. We're not with staffs and snakes anymore. No, the Nile, the river that runs through the center of Egypt, is turned to blood. The Nile that symbolizes life to the Egyptians is where they get their water and their food. It will be the heartbeat of Egypt. In the hot Egyptian summer, the Nile would mean that that water would be there in Egypt, meaning life could continue. The Nile was one of the Egypt's biggest assets, and the Egyptians would have worshipped gods of the Nile. But the Nile wouldn't have been such a source of joy to God's people. Cast your mind back to Exodus chapter 1 with me, where Pharaoh decrees that all the Israelite baby boys are to be thrown into the Nile to drown. A place that brought life and prosperity to the Egyptians, brought death and horror and grief to God's people. It's as if God's showing Pharaoh, he remembers those baby boys who were thrown in the Nile to drown. It's as if he's saying, Egypt's evil has not gone unnoticed. And now the riverbanks are stained with blood so everyone can see it. And what does God say to Pharaoh? He says, let my people go so they can worship me. What sort of king do we see here? We see a king who's committed to his people. Not only does does God continue to say the same thing to Pharaoh, not only does he continue to fight for his people, he also shows his people that he has heard their cries, that he remembers their misery. He shows them that that, that their suffering has not gone unnoticed and that he is fighting for them. God is the sort of God who is committed to his people's good. But what's Pharaoh like? What sort of king is he? When the Nile turns to blood, Pharaoh turns back into his palace. He hardens his heart. And the, but then when the frogs come, we sort of see a slight different change to Pharaoh, don't we? For the first time, he calls Moses and Aaron to him. He's like, come to me. And he asks them to, to pray for him. And he even says he'll let God's people go. And he starts to think, oh, could be this be the moment of change? Could this be the turning point in the story? But as Moses and Aaron pray to God... As God listens, and as all the frogs die, as, as God brings relief to Egypt, and even to Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his heart. What sort of king is Pharaoh? He's committed to himself. See, Pharaoh's change isn't real change. He hasn't really come to see that God is king. He's not really going to let the Israelites go. He just wants his own suffering to end. He doesn't care about anything other than his own comfort and his own desires. He doesn't really care about his own people. We see this because they come up to him and they say, this is the finger of God after the gnats, and he doesn't listen. He hardens his heart. Why does it happen? It happens because Pharaoh only really cares about himself. He doesn't want to know or acknowledge that God is king. He just wants his life to be a bit easier. This is what we might call worldly sorrow. Pharaoh's sorrow is one that just wants his own pain to end. He's not really repentant. He's not really sorry. 
He's not really sorry he hasn't listened to God or, or let the Israelites go. I remember as a child, my mum asking me, are you sorry because of what you did or are you sorry you got caught? <laughs> In other words, what kind of sorrow are you feeling? Paul describes two types of sorrow like this. He says, there's godly sorrow that brings repentance, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. And there's worldly sorrow that brings death. Pharaoh's sorrow is worldly sorrow and it's ultimately selfish. Pharaoh's sorry he got caught up in the plagues. He's not sorry he didn't listen. God is committed to his people, but Pharaoh is committed only to himself. And isn't this also the way sin works? When sin feels like so powerful in our lives, it can be tempting to think it's for us. It can be tempting to think, do you know what, actually, it's not that bad. I come away from that conversation where, where I didn't say what I should have said, and I think, actually, they'd still like me. Is, is it really that bad? Isn't my life just easier not, not speaking the truth, not saying the right thing? Or, or it's not that bad to, to yell at someone. Like, I just need to get it out. Isn't that what the world's always saying? Just, you need to get it out of you and you'll feel better. Or it's not that bad to spend an hour looking at pornography. Or it's not that bad to find relaxation in a bottle of wine. It can be tempting to think that actually the sin we struggle with, it's not that bad for you. It can sometimes even be tempting to think it's good for you. But, but it's lies. Because what we need to remember is that none of these things are committed to our good. Alcohol doesn't care about you. Pornography won't fight for your good. Anger and fear of man won't step in and help you when the going gets tough. Just like Pharaoh, these things are self-serving. They want to enslave you, not free you. And when we feel under the power of these things, we can want to appease them, just make life easier for us. But they're not for us. They enslave us. I can't say that enough. They're not committed to our good. They don't care about our good. But God does. God is a king who is committed to his people. He is committed to their good. He's committed to your good. In the face of these battles, in those moments of really struggling with sin, let's remember the type of king God is. He's a king who's committed to his people. Well, the, the story isn't over yet. Amazingly, God gives Pharaoh, this self-serving, selfish king, another chance. And read with me from, from chapter 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on your officials and onto your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies, even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms, will be, no swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured onto Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer to our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. If we were to offer sacrifices that were detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness and offer sacrifices to our God the Lord our God, as he commands us. Pharaoh said, 
I will let you go and offer sacrifices to the Lord, your God, in the wilderness. But you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord. And tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses and Pharaoh Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Even, even after Pharaoh didn't keep his word, even after claiming he'd let God's people go, he again hardens his heart and decides that he will not let God's people go. And God again sends Moses and Aaron to him, giving Pharaoh another warning. Not another plague, another warning that another plague is coming. I'll get to this point in that story, I'm just like, God is so gracious to Pharaoh. He's sending them again just to say to to Pharaoh that this is another chance. Again, God is showing showing Pharaoh that he he is real, he is powerful, and he is king, and he's fighting for his people. But but this time it couldn't be more clear because he says, because these flies are only going to be on your people. They're not going to be on mine. God is showing that he's committed to his people. And this time he's making it extra clear because the plagues are only going to come on the Egyptians. The message couldn't be clearer. God is saying, I am real. I am powerful. These are my people. Let them go. And have you noticed how So far in the story, everything God says happens. God tells Moses and Aaron what he's going to do, and every time it happens. The staff turns into a snake. The Nile turns to blood. The frogs invade the land. The dust turns to gnats. The flies only come on the people of Egypt. What sort of king is God? He's a king who delivers on his promises. Everything God says happens. His words can, can be trusted. But that couldn't be more contrasting with Pharaoh. Because yet again, Pharaoh promises to let God's people go. And again, he asks God to help him in the face of suffering. But when the flies are gone, when he can pretend he's back in control, he goes back on his word. And he doesn't let God's people go. Pharaoh's the sort of king who who promises freedom, but never delivers. Pharaoh's the sort of king who promises freedom, but gives you slavery. Doesn't that just remind you how sin works? Sin always promises freedom, and never delivers. It always says, this time will be the last time. I come away from those conversations where I just feel like gutted that I didn't say the right thing. I think next time I will. Alcohol always says, one last glass. Pornography always promises, this time is the last time. The angry outburst always says, this one's the last one. Tomorrow you'll be calm. Sin always promises, this time will be the last time. Then you'll be free. But it never delivers. Sin promises to let us go again and again. But it always backs down and it enslaves us. It doesn't deliver on its promise of freedom. Sin promises freedom, but it gives you slavery. And when sin's power feels so strong, when we feel it's sort of oppressive for us, sometimes the question of what sort of kingdom I want can feel mute. Like, 
Whether you're a Christian or not here today, you probably think, well, I'd like a king who's more like God than Pharaoh. I'd like a king who is powerful, who, who is strong, who is committed to his people, who delivers on his promises. Uh, we don't want a king who is selfish and unreliable and not quite strong enough. But, but we can feel like that when sin is so powerful, it can just feel like, well, what choice do I want? I imagine if you asked an Israelite, would you like a king like God or a king like Pharaoh? They'd be like, well, I'd like a king like God, but I've got a king like Pharaoh. Like... Like, it can feel like, actually, this isn't a question we, we get to ask. And it can feel that way because, because in many ways, we're born into Egypt. We're, we're born into slavery. We're born into a world ruled by, by sin and death. And sometimes we can just feel powerless in that world. Paul, Paul talks about this feeling. Let, let me read to you how he describes it. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? As I've talked about the sort of powerful oppression of sin at times, and as I've thought about those times in my life where I just feel like I'm battling and and giving in, I found myself asking the same question as Paul. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from the power of sin and death? Because it just seems too powerful, just like Pharaoh would have done to the Israelites. Just like the Israelites, we need a Moses figure. We need a Moses figure who will come into our world and who will rescue us from the oppressive power of sin and death and who will bring us into a new kingdom. We need Jesus. There's a a verse which follows Paul's question of who will rescue me, where he says this, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. We need Jesus. Jesus was the one who stood up to the strength of sin. When, When Jesus entered the world, he entered the same world we live in, the same world where sin and death seem to rule, where no one else can stand up to them, where no one else can defeat them, and yet he did not give in. Jesus resisted the lies of Satan that promised comfort and importance and power. Jesus refused to give in to selfishness, even when people were yelling at him, just go save yourself. Jesus came face to face with sin and death, and he did not cave in. He did not leave those conversations thinking, oh, next time I'll do the right thing. He did, he did not give in. No, instead, he swallowed it up. Just like God's snakes swallowed up Pharaoh's, when Jesus came face to face with sin and death, he swallowed up death, defeating it forever. You see, Jesus is the true human that resists the powerful force of sin. He resists the powerful force of sin and defeats death and conquers it forever. And that's the good news that, like at Grace Church, we're so buzzing about. Because in those moments where you just feel ground down by sin in your life, where you feel like, I can never defeat this, Jesus says, you don't have to have done it for you. He says, come to me and find forgiveness. Jesus offers to bring us out of slavery and into freedom. Jesus longs to break the power of sin and death in our lives. Jesus is the reason Paul could write, we're more than conquerors. Because if we're honest, we're not conquerors, are we? But look at the second half of that verse, through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors now because of what Jesus did. We are more than conquerors because Jesus defeated sin and death forever. 
This is good news. When, when we are battling, when we are facing sin, and it just feels bigger than us, we have a God who is not bigger than. And not only do we have a God who is not bigger than, we have a God who's already defeated it. Jesus has conquered sin and death forever. And that means that there is no sin, no power, no struggle that you face today that is bigger than Jesus. There's no king that he can't defeat. He has defeated death, the most powerful enemy forever. Let let me pray 